0: section seven of life of john churchill duke of marlborough by louise Creighton. this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter four william and mary part two in sixteen eighty eight louis the Fourteenth's power and magnificence seemed as great as ever but there were not wanting signs which showed that the fabric which he had raised was a hollow one and could not last colbert was dead and could no longer keep the finances in order by his wise measures lyon was no longer there to keep foreign courts in good temper by wise and flattering words only louvois remained to stir up the willing king to new wars and new aggressions william of orange had been allowed to gain peaceable possession of the english crown and now as soon as he had settled the government in england he was enabled to obtain from parliament what indeed was the chief object of his schemes a declaration of war against france england whom by more cautious measures louis the Fourteenth might have kept neutral if not his ally was now with the rest of europe arrayed against him in may 1689 william sent some of the best english regiments under the earl of marlborough to join the dutch army which was commanded by the prince of waldeck they were opposed by a french army of superior numbers and were only able to act on the defensive but marlborough found opportunities of showing his skill and promptitude in a manner which called down upon him the warm praise of the prince of waldeck and of william himself during marlborough's absence on the continent his wife had employed herself in an agitation to secure a large income for the princess anne anne as heir-presumptive to the throne was a person of considerable importance and she was at present entirely under the influence of the Marlboroughs. they felt that they could best increase their importance by increasing hers and encouraged her to demand from parliament a large income which should be independent of the crown lady marlborough employed all her energy in canvassing the tories to gain their support to this proposal william and mary were deeply hurt when they discovered what was being done without any consultation with them mary remonstrated with her sister but found her quite obstinate attempts were made to persuade lady marlborough to desist from her endeavours but she showed an insolent determination to go her own way anne was extremely popular the tories were in a majority in the house of commons and it was hoped that by an appeal to parliament anne might get a larger income than she could obtain from a private arrangement with william and mary but when her friends named seventy thousand pounds a year they found that they had asked too much from a country already overburdened by the demands made upon its resources at last a compromise was effected anne declared herself contented with fifty thousand pounds and william agreed that it should be settled on her by act of parliament anne at once rewarded lady marlborough by giving her a pension of a thousand pounds a year these proceedings did not tend to make william and mary look upon lady marlborough with much favour after his first campaign in holland marlborough was not immediately sent back to the continent his presence in england was thought advisable to form one of a council of nine who were to advise mary on the conduct of affairs whilst william was compelled to be absent in ireland the state of affairs in ireland was alarming and called for active interference james the second had appointed as lord lieutenant of ireland the earl of tyrconnell an unscrupulous papist tyrconnell had refused to enter into any communications with william and having raised a large army of irish catholics sent to summon james from france to place himself at their head louis the fourteenth agreed to furnish james and the irish with troops and money hoping that disturbances in ireland would make it impossible for william to interfere actively in continental affairs louis the fourteenth parted from James with warm expressions of friendship, I hope, he said, that we are about to part, never to meet again in this world. But if any evil chance should force you to return, be assured that you will find me to the last, such as you have found me hitherto. James landed in Ireland in February 1689, and found most of the country in the hands of Tyrconnell, but he had to suffer much from the quarrels of his partisans. Tyrconnell and the Irish Catholics really cared nothing for James. Their object was to seize this opportunity of freeing themselves from the supremacy of England. James was only useful because he brought with him the aid of the King of France. The English Jacobites, on the other hand, looked upon James's success in Ireland only as a step to his return to England. But though James's court at Dublin was disturbed by disputes, the position of Irish affairs was very formidable to William. Fortunately, James's proceedings in Ireland were not such as to awaken any sympathy for him in England. He showed that misfortunes had not taught him wisdom, for he favoured none but Catholics and allowed the Irish to persecute the English colonists in july sixteen eighty nine william was at last able to send an army into ireland he chose as its general a french protestant the duke of Schomberg, who rather than lay aside his faith had left a great position in france and gone out into the world as a refugee when nearly eighty years of age he had accompanied william in his descent upon england as general of his army and was extremely popular amongst the english but in spite of his veteran skill he was able to do little in ireland with an army of raw troops william determined to go to ireland himself with a greater force and bring the struggle to an end louis the fourteenth took steps to strengthen james's position by sending him a reinforcement of french troops at the same time he dispatched a great french fleet into the english channel Mary and her council sent orders to the English Admiral Torrington to engage the French in battle. Torrington fought in a half-hearted way, and the French gained a decided victory off Beachy Head. Whilst London, terrified at this defeat, was hourly dreading a French invasion, news came that William had won a decisive battle on the Boyne, July 1, 1690. The veteran Schomberg had perished on the field but the irish and french forces were completely routed james fled to dublin whilst the battle was still raging and escaped to france the battle of the boyne settled the course of the war in ireland nothing remained to be done except the gradual reduction of such places as still stood out for james in the council of nine marlborough recommended that as there was no longer any danger of invasion since the french fleet had returned to france an english fleet with five thousand troops on board should be sent to the south of ireland where some important places still held out for james the majority of the council strongly opposed him but mary referred the proposal to william who heartily approved and the conduct of the expedition was entrusted to marlborough William returned to London in the autumn, and Marlborough was then at Portsmouth waiting for a fair wind to take his ships to Ireland. He sailed on the 18th September and reached Cork on the 21st. He acted with great promptitude. The Irish made a stout resistance, but in 48 hours the place was taken. Marlborough lost no time, and a few hours after Cork had fallen sent his cavalry on to Kinsale. This too was speedily captured. It was the most convenient port for intercourse with France, and its forts were found to be stocked with wheat and wine. The damp climate was so trying to the English that disease soon showed itself amongst Marlborough's troops and compelled him to bring the campaign to an end. He returned to Kensington only five weeks after he had sailed. William welcomed him most warmly no officer living he said who has seen so little service as my lord marlborough is so fit for great commands affairs on the continent next demanded william's attention the strength of the coalition against louis the fourteenth had been increased by the support of the duke of savoy who had been won over from the side of louis the advantages of the war had on the whole been with the french but william's success in ireland enabled him to go abroad himself with more troops, and though no battle was won, nothing was lost. William's absences on the continent and the importance of foreign politics left conspirators at home ample opportunity to plot against the government. There were plenty of discontented minds in England, men who thought that the new state of things had not done for them all that they expected and deserved men again who now that they no longer felt the tyranny of james the second repented that they had been led away to rebel against their king the greater part of the conspirators were actuated by no decided principles they had no particular wish to restore james the second but the future seemed to them so dark and uncertain that they held it wise for their own interests to be if possible on friendly terms with james so that they might not suffer should he be restored. It is hopeless to look for high principles amongst the statesmen and courtiers of those days. Political morality never sank so low as it did after the Restoration, and the men who administered the government of William and Mary had been trained at the court of Charles II. Some of the chief men in the government now entered into communications with James one of these was edward russell a leading whig who as admiral of the fleet commanded the united forces of england and holland he was irritable and discontented by nature and thought that sufficient favour had not been shown to his relatives marlborough who had not scrupled to betray james the second to william now did not scruple of his own accord to offer all the assistance in his power to the jacobite conspirators he was entirely wanting in those qualities which would have made him a faithful adherent to any cause with all his splendid ability he had no fine sense of honour no motive higher than self-interest he would serve william as long as it seemed clear that william was on the winning side but as soon as he saw there was any chance Of the jacobite plots succeeding he thought it well to make friends with james again he knew that james regarded him with bitter anger that he had said repeatedly he would never forgive him he therefore made humble approaches to the jacobite conspirators he expressed his deep sorrow for his former base treachery and his willingness to do anything in his power to show his repentance he kept up during several years communications with james's court at st germain and from time to time gave information of the measures of the government at home but he never threw himself entirely into the cause of the exiled king nor fulfilled all the promises he made him he only did just enough to secure for himself a promise of pardon should james be restored to the throne it was partly owing to marlborough's influence that lord godolphin the first lord of the treasury was at last persuaded by the jacobites to enter into communications with james godolphin and marlborough were bound to one another by a sincere friendship proceeding partly from a sense of community of interest but at any rate rare in those days for till godolphin's death nothing ever produced a difference between them and they worked together in entire concord Godolphin had first risen to importance in Charles II's reign as a commissioner of the treasury. He was a patient, hard working man, and so thoroughly mastered the details of finance that he became an invaluable servant to any government. He had no passions, no decided principles which would lead him to prefer one party to another. He was ready to work with any government if he could secure for himself a comfortable and lucrative position. And he was so honest and trustworthy in financial matters as to ensure for himself wonderful success in public life. Charles the second had said of him, Sidney Godolphin is never in the way and never out of the way. And the truth of this saying is shown by the manner in which each successive government made use of him. Even James the second, who as a rule trusted only papists, gave Godolphin his confidence. He was made chamberlain to james's queen and did not scruple in fulfilling the duties of his office to give her his hand when she went to mass later james II made him a commissioner of the treasury william so clearly saw his usefulness that in sixteen ninety he made him first commissioner of the treasury and put complete confidence in him it was only unwillingly at first that godolphin listened to the proposals of the jacobites but like marlborough he soon felt that it would be wise to secure a promise of pardon from James, and to gain this, he too made occasional communications about the measures of the government to St Germain of Section seven.